Please rise for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read this morning uh, in chapter 8. Um, we're going to start in verse 9. And right now I'm going to read through verse 25, and then later in the sermon we'll take up some of the other verses after that. So beginning in chapter 8, verse 9, hear now God's Word. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed, uh, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, They sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had had fallen on none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my, whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And thus far the reading of God's word. And all God's people said, Amen. We left our story last time in the book of Acts with the death of Stephen, which led to an immediate and great persecution in Jerusalem, which then led to a great dispersion of many Christians from Jerusalem to the surrounding cities and villages. This resulted in the preaching of God's Word and many conversions and baptisms in Samaria And we ended this part of the story last time uh, with the uh, declaration that in Samaria there was great joy in the city. And so that's where we'll take up this morning. Jesus had given his disciples, you'll recall, a mission uh, just before he ascended to the right hand of God. And he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which provides a real outline for the book of Acts, He told his disciples, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. This mission plan was now unfolding. And we'll see further examples of this when we briefly, uh, uh, as we briefly look this morning 
at the report of two particular individuals, Simon the sorcerer and then the Ethiopian eunuch. We'll take one little side trip to address the question of the laying on of hands and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin. We're going to move through this fairly rapidly. We're trying to cover a lot of territory here, uh, but uh, we're going to start with Simon the sorcerer. A few years ago, I saw a plaque in my sister's house down in her basement with a quotation from Catherine Aird, uh, Aird, which said, if you can't be a good example, you'll just have to serve as a horrible warning. Um, well, we have something to learn from everyone, but it's not always positive. Sometimes we see people that we should look up to and emulate, and I need a lot more uh, uh, to do that a lot more often than I do. I need people like that in my life. And then there are the other kinds of people that we should learn from for a different reason, uh, people who we should take notice of. Uh, the lessons they teach us are no less valuable. I don't want to be like that. So the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes lay, lay out in dramatic contrast a dramatic contrast between the lessons learned by observing the wise and also the lessons learned by observing the foolish. So we should not only learn from everyone positively or negatively, we should remember that we too are teachers, that we're teaching others and, and we're doing so in the same manner, one way or the other. We teach with our words, we teach with our lives. Uh, if we are genuine Christians, You'll recall that we have both heard and seen the gospel. Uh, in those cases, the gospel was adorned by the lives of wise and godly people. However, in some cases, the gospel is marred uh, by the lives of those who profess it. So God's words and God's works don't contradict each other, and the same should be true with us. Well, Simon seems, at least in this instance, to be one of those horrible warnings. He is traditionally called Simon Magus. Uh, Magus is not in the scripture, but Magus just uh, means magician. So that has been attached to him, Simon the magician. Um, uh, and so things start out pretty well. Simon was what we might call in our day an influencer uh, in the local Samaritan district a bit of a celebrity. He had performed amazing things. We're not sure what. The text doesn't tell us. But so much so that everyone, great and small, knew about, knew who he was, knew what he did, and were impressed. And for some time had paid attention to what he had to say. So he was well known. He was famous for his magical powers. Then along comes Philip, and he was beginning to draw some large crowds and also got Simon's attention. And Simon was impressed with Philip's power. It says he was amazed seeing the miracles and the signs that were done. And then we're just told Simon, along with some, many of the other Samaritans, believed, believed what Philip had said and was baptized. He's a church member. A little later, Peter and John come down to evaluate what's going on, and they prayed for these new believers, and that's where we read that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, 
and they receive the Holy Spirit. We're going to return to that text here in a few minutes to address that question of laying on of hands and the Holy Spirit. But Simon again witnessed this. He was impressed with what he saw. And we presume, though this text doesn't tell us, that they also, like those on the day of Pentecost, spoke in tongues, spoke in foreign languages, and were uh, heard by those who could understand those languages. So now in what happens next, I am not certain uh, whether it is an indication that Simon was, turns out, not to have been a true believer or just an immature and ignorant new believer. And I... uh, but here's what here's what happens next. The commentators I, re- I read, really all of them, said took the view that he was only a professor of Christ, but not a true believer, not a true convert. Uh, I'm inclined to say that it's possible that he simply was new, a new and untaught believer who stepped in it. Um, I can relate to that. There's no indication, for example, that Simon was excommunicated. We don't have an Ananias and Sapphira situation here. Um, But he was very sternly rebuked by Peter. And we read, and when Simon saw that uh, through the laying on of hands of the apostles' hands, excuse me, when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon sees an opportunity. He wanted the power to do what Peter and John were doing. Since Simon was a man of means, apparently, again, he's famous and well-known and successful, he assumed this was something that he could acquire by making the appropriate financial donation. I've known plenty of Christians like that. Some of you might be familiar with the term simony, which means uh, it's a term that came to be used in church history, which was a way of of describing someone who wanted to purchase a church office or power, a place of influence in the church. That's uh, attributed to Simon here. Um, Perhaps he aspired to be the first televangelist. I'm not sure. But uh, Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor uh, portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. So this contrast, for example, with the attitude we see later uh, with the apostles, uh, with, the, uh, with, with Paul, who carefully distinguishes between the power of Jesus, uh, Jesus' name, and their own power and greatness. We see, we've seen that really from the beginning in the book of Acts. It's not me, it's Jesus. Jesus is doing this. Remember, the book of Acts is really, uh, instead of the Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of Jesus through the apostles, through their agents. So this is Jesus acting, uh, and Simon's wanting to do it himself. They suggest that the faith is, um, excuse me, a concern over the corruption of the faith appears in these comments about uh, Simon. They suggest that the faith is corrupted 
when humans attempt to use God's power to make themselves powerful or to make themselves important in the eyes of other men. And so, because this is a continual temptation, the leaders of the mission must make it clear uh, uh, whenever the crowd gets false ideas that they themselves are neither divine nor great. So Simon has, in this moment at least, is taking an opposite attitude. He thinks money can give him the power, perhaps, to confer the Holy Spirit on whomever he chooses. So Peter gives a strong rebuke to Simon and his money, and a more literal translation of the Greek would be, you and your money can go to hell. That's how strong the word is here. Wow, coming from Peter. Uh, uh, he, he Basically, the, the Spirit is the gift of God, and it is not subject to human buying and selling, not something that can be manipulated by you. Nevertheless, Peter quickly tells Simon that forgiveness for what he's done is possible if he repents. Stop doing that. Stop talking that way. Stop thinking that way. You need to change. And then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. And that's why when I read this text, I find some real hope that perhaps Simon was a believer, just young, ignorant, uninformed, and again, stepped in it. This is part of what, again, leads me to be charitable perhaps towards Simon. Um, Again, I too have done and said some very ignorant and foolish things in my Christian journey. I don't know that we have to make the decision about Simon and what his ultimate status is before God. That's God's business. But what we do see here is an important lesson very early in the church and very wise on the part of the apostles to make it clear and for Luke to record this and the Holy Spirit inspiring Luke to record this in, in Scripture to give this warning. We all are aware, we've seen it in our lifetime, of men in the church who have corrupted the church because of money and using the church and trying to use these kinds of things in order to gain fame and fortune. And I think that seriously tells us what we should think of many of the televangelists and people like that that we have seen who are exploiting people for their own personal gain. Uh, that's a pretty strong rebuke. You and your money can go to hell. That's how strong the Scriptures speak about this. So let me, I said I was going to mention something about this, the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read this again. Remember the apostles, well, let me just say, the apostles, uh, John, uh, Peter and John, have come now from Jerusalem. They've heard about the Samaritans. They've come down to check things out, to validate this. And we're told this kind of odd situation where they've been, they believed and they were baptized, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. So they lay hands on them and uh, they receive the Holy Spirit. Well, both Pentecostals and Catholics and some other groups claim warrant from this and similar passages for their belief that Christian initiation comes in two stages. Catholics hold that baptism uh, comes first and is to be followed by confirmation from a bishop. And again, some other uh, Christian groups do the same thing. You may have been baptized even as an infant or later in life, and then at some point we have a confirmation, maybe even a confirmation class, uh, so that uh, maybe it's uh, at a certain age. 
where this happens. Pentecostals and some charismatics hold that stage one is repentance and faith, which uh, which must be or might be, depending on the group, followed by baptism of the Holy Spirit evidenced by speaking in tongues. In other words, they take the events of Acts chapter 8, and we see this again in Acts 10 and Acts 11 as what we call normative. In other words, this is what happened then, and therefore that's what should happen every time. That's the standard. That's, uh, that's where we go to, to argue that we should have the same kind of experience. And I would argue, and I'm not gonna, I don't have time to flesh this out in full, but just for the sake of briefly dealing with this section, I would argue that in Acts we have special circumstances. Therefore, rather than being normative, this is exceptional. The coming of the Holy Spirit in the likeness of what happened on the day of Pentecost is a sign that God wants to now include the Samaritans And then we get over to Acts chapter 10. We're going to see this happen again with the Gentiles. And so by doing this, we see that, again, this is the salvation that God is not just bringing to the Jews. He brought it to the Jews first, but now he's bringing it to the broader world. But there's some resistance, right, on the part of the Jews. We, We talked about that last week, especially with the Samaritans, certainly with the Gentiles too, and so uh, God, and it's, it's interesting that God's using Peter and John uh, in this role uh, for other reasons we see in their lives later. I'll mention one in a moment. But um, So the coming of the Holy Spirit in the likeness of what happened on the day of Pentecost under the oversight of the apostles is a sign that God wants to now include the Samaritans and the Gentiles in that salvation. In Acts 11... Luke describes Peter's understanding of what is happening and why. So we read in Acts 11, 15 through 18, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them as uh, as upon us at the beginning, like it happened on Pentecost. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God. It's like, okay. All our arguments against the the Samaritans, all our arguments against the Gentiles, well, shut my mouth. We, We can't argue with that. Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. On Pentecost, it was Jews speaking the gospel to other Jews in known foreign languages, known to the hearers, but unknown to the speakers. During this age of the launching of the new beginning in Jesus Christ, signs and wonders come by the hands of the apostles and by the hands of their agents to validate their claims about the Savior. And here in Samaria, these half-breed Samaritans will likewise receive the same sign. And again, we'll see this in Acts 10 with the Gentile Cornelius and his household, and again in Judea 
in Acts chapter 11, where more Gentiles received the Spirit and the sign of tongues. So the arrival of the apostles, Peter and John, serves to verify, to validate the genuine work of God among these non-Jews. So Paul would describe this later in Ephesians 2.13, saying, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you weren't in Israel, you weren't here around the temple, you were over there, you were cut off, you once who were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Peter, in his Pentecost sermon, had also said, we read, uh, he said, repent and let, so he's talking to the Jews, and they said, what must we do in light of what you said? He says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children. Sound familiar? That's the Abrahamic promise. But the rest of the Abrahamic promise is given too. The, the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off. Who's that? Samaritans and Gentiles and the uttermost parts of the earth. As many as the Lord our God will call. This is going to be an open gospel to the world. So Jesus had told Peter he would give him the keys to the kingdom. I'm not certain that that's what's going on here. But that's a possibility. Here's Peter coming to Samaria to validate and verify that these are true Christians. Moreover, it seems appropriate that John also was sent to the Samaritans. Since you recall, Luke had reported that on one occasion, James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume a Samaritan city, wherein Jesus sternly rebuked them. All right, part two. The Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 8. Let's read verse 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, uh, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? There's a lot of interesting things in this short passage. The story of the Ethiopian eunuch is linked to the preceding events because Philip remains a central character. With Cornelius, we will see the spread of the gospel to the Gentile world. Uh, That'll be uh, coming up in uh, chapter 10. But here we see another aspect of what Jesus had given his disciples as their mission uh, because Ethiopia was on what what we would call the end of the earth. It was the outer banks of the known world. The scene anticipates the power of the gospel then to reach the end of the earth. The man Luke describes was not only a eunuch, as were most courtiers at that time, but he was also a very important official who oversaw the treasury of Candace, the Ethiopian queen. And men like this eunuch often traded a life, a family life, uh, 
and hard labor and possibly poverty for an opportunity to have wealth and security and status among the elite. This was a big deal. He was like White House staff. Um, uh, by the way, the word Candace was not a personal name, but rather a dynastic title for the queen mother. So this is actually the, uh, the, the mother of the king, uh, which just reminded me of a funny story. Marinelle and I were in New York at the Metropolitan Art Museum, and uh, we, you go to a different room. Roy was talking about benches in front of big pieces of art. So you go from room to room and be different kinds of displays. And I came around the corner, and there was this man and woman, and they had photographers and a group of people around them. And they were, it was a black man, a black woman, and they were decked out. I mean, in just amazing clothing, very colorful. And my first thought was, in fact, I told her, I said, I think that's the Queen of Sheba. <laughs> um, and I was kind of serious. I found out later that there's no longer a queen of Sheba, but I didn't know that at the time. And they were posing and taking pictures. And I thought, man, this is something. I, nobody else was in the room. I was kind of standing in the doorway. I wish I had gotten a picture. I ended up speaking to them. And I found out they were just pretending. Uh, they, were, they were doing some kind of photo shoot for something, and they were all dressed up. And I, and I actually said to her, I said, May I ask who you are? And she said, I'm the Queen of Sheba. <laughs> so, anyway, back to Acts chapter 8. The angel of the Lord uh, speaks directly to Philip with very specific uh, geographical directions, which would lead him out into the middle of nowhere. I want you to go now from Samaria, I want you to go to the desert. To a very specific man who would be sitting in a chariot. Tells us he was a man of real wealth. And so this is an example of the particular election by God of a particular person. This man may have been searching for God, but it also becomes clear that God was searching for this man. You remember the hymn, we sing this hymn sometime, it's an anonymous hymn, I sought the Lord And afterward I knew that he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. This man had come to Jerusalem to worship and is reading the Bible. Specifically, he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53. Now, I want to say... Right now, I am, what I'm about to say, I am speculating a bit. But we know that Solomon had contact and inter, interaction with the Ethiopians. First Kings, I want to read First Kings chapter 10 and verses 1 through 13. It's a little longer passage, but I want you to get this story because I think it has everything to do with why this Ethiopian eunuch sitting in the chariot, is reading from Isaiah and why he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now it came, this is 1 Kings 10, 1. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of Yahweh, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue 
with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters, and their apparel, his cupbearers, and his entryway by which he went up to the house of Yahweh, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes, and indeed the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and, and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are your men, and happy are these ser- your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be Yahweh your God, who, delight, who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because Yahweh has loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great quantity, and precious stones. There never again came such abundance of spice as the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Also the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought great quantities of almond wood and precious stones from Ophir, and the king made steps of the almond wood for the house of Yahweh and for the king's house, also harps and stringed instruments for singers. There never again came such uh, almond wood, nor has uh, the like been seen to this day. Now King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired, Whatever she asked, beside what Solomon had given her according to the royal generosity, so she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. So, my question, speculation, seems to be reasonable speculation to me. Did the queen convert to Judaism and take that back to her court and to her country? Does this account for the court eunuch coming to Jerusalem to worship and now reading Isaiah the prophet from the Old Testament? And are these two examples, Solomon and Philip, of evangelism over many generations, how God's been at work? There's no evidence that any of the first century Jews, including the disciples, were expecting a suffering rather than a triumphant Messiah, including the disciples. It was actually Jesus who applied Isaiah 53 to himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, and in Luke 22:47. So the early Christians had learned from Jesus how to read Isaiah 53. In an interesting note, and with a bit more of my curious speculation, while eunuchs had been forbidden to enter the temple in Deuteronomy 23.1, Isaiah prophesies of a coming day where that situation was going to change. And so I wonder if this Ethiopian had been reading through Isaiah 
Uh, so, of course, right now he's, in, he's reading Isaiah 53. But in Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5, listen to what it says. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh speak, saying, Yahweh has utterly separated me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says Yahweh to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name. Better than that of the sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name. They shall not be cut off. Or perhaps he had already read Isaiah 11.11, which speaks of Cush, which was the native land of Ethiopia. It shall come to pass in that day that that Yahweh shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from, from Paphras and Cush. So the Spirit says to Philip, Go near and overtake the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? No. Uh, And I'm thinking, now, wasn't it a lucky coincidence that this man was reading Isaiah 53? And he said, how can I? How can I understand this unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. Uh, And again, the place which he read, this is where he was reading in Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the scripture, preached Jesus to him. It's clear that the Holy Spirit had prepared the heart of this man. Maybe he had been doing it for a thousand years in all the, uh, if I'm right about the Queen of Sheba. But however he did it, he seems to have already prepared his heart because it seems like the Ethiopian eunuch believed immediately because the next thing we hear is, now as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now, just another note regarding the question of the mode of baptism, immersion, or sprinkling. This text doesn't resolve that issue. We don't know how much or how deep the water was. And in either case, both the baptizer and the baptized went down into the water. So it says, now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. As the Queen of Sheba might have brought Judaism back to Ethiopia in Solomon's day, 
and perhaps led to this eunuch's trip to Jerusalem, now this converted man is headed back to Africa as a baptized Christian. So this converted man is headed back from this remote desert region. It seems that this one man will impact the course of church history for centuries to come. We should remember that some of the most important names in early church history were Africans, Cyprian, Tertullian, and Augustine, just to name three. So Philip evangelized then large crowds of Samaritans, and now he has this one-on-one encounter with this man in the desert in a chariot. And his message, though, was the same, which was the good news of the resurrected Jesus Christ. In both situations, the response from the hearers was that they believed and were baptized. And in both cases, the result was In the case of the Samaritans, great joy in the city. And in this story at the end, what we're told about the uh, Ethiopian eunuch is he went on his way rejoicing. And that's what you do when you receive good news. You can't keep that in. It's going to flow out. It's got to come out. So let me point out one more thing that we will continue to see in Acts, and that is that wherever God's people went, The word went with them, and they proclaimed it. Therefore, Acts 8.4, we already read last week, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now in Acts 8.40, and passing through, he, Philip, preached in all the cities. Later, we'll read when Paul was waiting in Athens for Silas and Timothy, In in Acts 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with whoever happened to be there. Evangelism was part of their daily conversation. Verse 40, But Philip was found in Astos, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. And we're going to pause our story here, and next time we'll read of one of the most dramatic and significant events that had a direct impact on all of us who are sitting right here today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Son to rescue us along with Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. Thank you for sending your Spirit to the end of the earth. Thank you for sending your Son and your Spirit to us so that we too could have great joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In light of this story uh, that is unfolding, the story of the spread of the gospel to the end of the earth, uh, to every tribe and tongue, I want to just set the table, tie together what we were saying uh, with what we're about to do. And read from Revelation, the fifth chapter, starting in verse 8. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain 
and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, you got that picture? All the animals, the fish, they all said, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.